there's any pressing announcements. Just the Lord's Supper coming up this Sunday and the luncheon. So looking forward to that. We have the call to worship. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand to sing hymn 276, 276.
us pray. We are grateful, God Almighty, as we stand in awe of your love, and indeed you've washed away all our sins through the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord, past, present, and future. Help us to be encouraged therein and to live in that light, God, that you are with us and guiding us uh, together in the church of God. We pray these things in your name alone. Amen. You may be seated. Two thirty one. Okay, so two thirty one is not the one we're used to. It's it's similar, but they wanted to do it differently. I don't know if this is the original or what. So Jody will pay, play through it, and hopefully we can survive.
your people God above and history, uh, the remotest end of the earth, Lord, where this side of the world was not known at that time. Very little was known outside of the Middle East and Northern Africa and the like. And so, God, we see the prophecy fulfilled to the uttermost ends of the earth. Your name shall be glorified and praised and your kingdom expanded. We thank you to be part of that prophecy and fulfillment therein, God. May we be humbled therein. We pray for continued effort to that end. And missions work, Lord, both locally in America and globally, overseas, God, with our efforts in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and not just our, only our efforts, but other uh, Napark churches and other churches of like faith and practice and faithful churches that love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and ask, God, that your name and word would be magnified and spread across this world, that there would be a biblical truth presented and faithful teachers, God, and the proper uh, support needed for the missionaries, Lord, in their endeavors and the dangerous fields sometimes, God, and uh, different difficult situations that they find themselves in, Lord, and that they could raise up indigenous, local converts, God, and leaders who understand their people and understand their weaknesses and strengths, God, understand their language and their culture and the way of thinking, which is different than ours in many ways, that they can be an established church, God Almighty, and a church that loves you and can be part of the global church of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
and be with our efforts overseas and also locally as well. And Dakotas and elsewhere, Lord, that we would have the wisdom to understand how best to plant churches, how best to uh, screen for good applicants and pastors to become missionaries, Lord, and their families, uh, to prepare themselves to deal with the American scene, the shifting sands and legal differences that have propped up and made differences, Lord, cropped up and made differences in the churches at times in various and sundry ways. Help us, we pray to that end, Lord, to continue to pray and support as best we can in consciousness before you. We pray for our families, God Almighty. We pray for the husbands and the wives in their relationship with one another, that he would love his wife, Lord, as his own body, and take care of her as best he can, God, at the same time leading, Lord. And sometimes uh, sin and tension is involved in that role as a husband, uh, but that you would help guide him to that end, Lord. And that the wife also, Lord, continue to do her duty and love towards her husband and submission. That you would help her overcome those sins and tensions and her responsibility as well, Lord, and draw them close to one another, uh, both before children and while they have children and after the children have grown up and left the household, Lord, as we have uh, in our congregations. And we ask, God, that you be with the fathers and mothers, that they would cooperate and work together in the training and admonition and discipline of their children and that they would be unified, God. The children will understand, Lord, even though their parents uh, sin, and certainly do sin, God, uh, that they love them, they're doing it in accordance to your word. And, uh, Lord God, we pray for the submission of the children, the love of those children, to grow strong towards their parents, especially towards Jesus Christ our Lord, as the parents instruct them in righteousness, in the word of God, and the gospel of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for other family relationships, as we have with our grandchildren, our grandparents. And uncles and nieces and other relatives, God, that we would continue to love them as part of our family and to work with us as we can, God, and to know our limitations at times where there's little we can say. Or perhaps, Lord, we're too shy and we need to speak when we uh, are too fearful when we should not be, God, and they're more open than we realize. Help us, whatever the case may be, with our families, God, with those close and related to us by blood, that we would continue to love them and to uh, work for their good and to help them as best we can and certainly always to pray for them. We lift up our work situation, especially for those with hard work situations and difficult times and hours, as we know of one who has to get up at midnight tonight, that you would be with them, that you would help them, Lord, to overcome their difficult situations, God, perhaps a better employment, a better company, a better boss, better hours, better pay, whatever, Lord, that is desired, that is needed, that they desire, God, in accordance to your will, would be accomplished, we pray. Uh, help us, whatever situation we find ourselves in with work, to do what we can, God, and not to become bitter or unduly angry and the like. And Lord, give us wisdom, we pray, and continue perseverance to do our duty and to be thankful for having employment, especially in such a expensive city as Denver. And we pray, Lord, also lastly for the schoolwork that the children among us, Lord, and the growing children, two and three-year-olds, I have to be prepared for some kind of schooling, usually homeschooling or some sort, and for the young adults among us, God, that are taking schooling and college, God, that they would uh, take the meats of the instruction and spit out the bones and grow thereby as best they can and be protected from the wickedness and the temptation around them, God Almighty, and that they would have comfort and a safe space here in the Church of God uh, for their weary bones throughout the week going through the secular schools especially. And so, God Almighty, be with us, we pray, in whatever endeavors and callings and vocations in life that we find ourselves in throughout this week, to be encouraged, to stand firm, to do our calling and duty, knowing that we have the Holy Spirit with us and your love upon us. We pray, God Almighty, that your name be magnified in all that we do. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings.
Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. We indeed praise you, God Almighty, and thankful for the giving of the tithes and offerings that you have allowed us to do, Lord, and that they would be used greatly in your kingdom with much wisdom and multiplication. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Psalm 37. I said we're continuing through Psalm 37. It's a relatively long psalm. A number of themes. Psalm 37, verses 12 to 22. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes his teeth at him with his gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter into their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the day of famine they shall be satisfied, but the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into the smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Let us pray. With these words of the psalm, Lord, part of the psalm, we see a stark contrast between the wicked and the righteous and how you deal with them, God Almighty. May it encourage and help us in our weak, in our weak faith, God, to be strengthened by these truths. Ultimate truths that shall come to pass, although in part here on earth, shall come to full fruition in eternity when Christ Jesus returns. And may we therefore continue to trust in you and rely upon that fact, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this is an interesting psalm, if only because it does not fit the form of what we think of other psalms. If you recall, it doesn't fit the pattern of a song like we read elsewhere, although it can be sung because it's more of a proverb. The form is an acrostic with verses or pairs of verses starting with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, like we go A is for apple and B is for boy except these are entire sentences, instead of silly sing-songs like we have in English, that <laughs> really mean nothing, uh, this imports biblical truth and meat to the children and to the audience. And so we're going to go through that meat, the topics here. And the topics, of course, are bunched into one or two verses at a time, uh, because it is an acrostic, more or less. A full exposition would cover every verse and have several sermons, and so I tried to break it up into three parts here that I think best fit some kind of a theme, although there are some overlap, obviously, because they are more or less proverbial in their form. 
In this case, the second part of Psalm 37 covers the contrast, more often than not, between the wicked and the righteous. As we look more carefully here at David's psalm, the wicked plots versus God's laughter. I probably should have put it in there, but God laughs or something like that in my title. Verses 12 through 15, the wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth, and the Lord laughs at him. So we have uh, there the wicked and then the response of God to the wicked and the righteous in verse 16 versus the wicked and again in these other verses. So the opening part here is the wicked plots. The wicked, brothers and sisters, hate the church. They hate God, therefore they hate the people who follow God. We read about that this morning a little bit. They have plots and machinations against the just. Do I need to unpack this in this day and age where social media giants coordinate with the government, where censorship is on the rise, where government officials are involved in sabotage and lying in the courts has come out yet again? And even in the church, unfortunately, there are wicked plots and schemes and plans and backroom deals. We read elsewhere in Micah that the wicked cannot rest until they do wickedness at night. They toss and turn until they get up in the morning to do something wicked. It's a different way of thinking and living than what we're used to, to be sure. And yet it's true, and we must accept the revelation of the Word of God. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The gnashing of the teeth, of course, means a bad-mouthing of the Christians. Not that he's literally trying to bite them as though he's Hannibal Lecter, but rather, to read elsewhere, that similar kind of language in the Psalms and the Proverbs, it's the talking and using their mouth for wickedness. Specifically, of course, to tear down and to lie about Christians, bunching us up with other social undesirables and the like, people we have nothing in common with, for example, and thus reminding us again of the hatred and anger that the wicked and those outside of Christ often have outwardly and expressively towards the followers of Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to a note here and a reminder of what this hatred is and is not and what it looks like. There are certainly degrees of wickedness and wicked actions in history and in life and around us. But they have a fundamental hate, an enmity, an animosity towards God Almighty. They know he exists and wish to flee that knowledge. As Romans 1 and Psalm 19 remind us. That's fundamental. That's true. No matter how nice your neighbor is, no matter how pleasant your boss is, no matter how good your coworker is towards you, he may give you the coat off his back. But if you start talking about God and submission to Christ Jesus, he will turn on you in a heartbeat, perhaps, in one way or another, one form or another expression. They may put up with it for a while, be very silent and quiet, maybe smile at you. But eventually it will come out, especially if you keep it up. How? In what way? It's different. We don't know. The nature of a proverb is to be striking, to capture your imagination so you can walk away and remember it, right? An apple a day, keep the doctor away. You're going to remember that? I remember that now. I'm 50 years old. But I know it means more than just simply an apple. It's a good diet and all that. So here, the wicked plots against the just isn't just to say that they're all scheming in the way you think of a cartoon character, evil villain, and James Bond movie scheming. Not necessarily that. 
but it's still there. That is, the desire to do wrong towards those who are doing right, who are doing nothing wrong but following Jesus Christ. It certainly gets their goat that we don't like what they do. They know it because we're not doing it. If we liked what they did, we would do that wickedness as well. And so their conscience is pricked. And thus, they will show some hatred towards us in some way, manner, or form. Here, he, the proverb hones in on the language of gnashing at him with his teeth, or lying, or bad-mouthing him, or attacking him verbally, or something along those lines. Hatred is expressed in varied and sundry ways in our life around us. And we have to remember that. The wicked, brothers and sisters, are satisfied in their wickedness and are not satisfied that we are not wicked alongside with them. Yet God laughs, verse 13. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. In Psalm 2, as you recall, verse 4, we read of God who sits in the heavens, and he shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Those puny kings and lords and masters who think they can shake their fist at God and get away from his control and power. The thought that puny man can stop the Lord of heaven and earth, shake their fist at him, and get away with it, is not just an American thing, it's a human thing. In America, we like to think of the individual having the power against the great mighty governments, or a big farmer or something in the movies, and big corporations, I can make a difference. It's the same kind of thing with God. I can stop God, I'm bigger than him, I can make a difference. And shut him down, and God shall laugh at him. They're arrogant fools who think they can triumph over our Lord and Savior. And God does not take them seriously. He is not fearful of them whatsoever. Their day of judgment is coming. He sees that their day is at hand. The wicked who scream at God and kill babies and mutilate children, their day is coming if they do not repent. They're laughing at God now. They tell jokes against our Lord and Savior and mock Jesus in comedies and in artwork, so-called. They're laughing, but God shall have the last laugh. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn the sword. So here he's unpacking. One of the ways Hebrew poetry works in the parallelisms, I'm sure you all have that memorized by now. Okay, pastor, stop it. We get it. And not just a similar idea, but they can sometimes expand the idea and go further into details. Things called extended parallelism. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow and to cast down the poor and the needy. So here he's unpacking more detail what it looks like to slay those who are of upright in conduct. This is what the plotting looks like. They use any weapon at their disposal. We don't take it, obviously, again, as a proverb and even as a, a song, as only war weapons of war, but any kind of tool they can use to take down those they hate. And so it's not just swords, obviously, but guns, and not just guns, but their influence and power politically, economically, financially, as I mentioned before, doxing those so that their houses get harassed and maybe even lose their jobs. Something that they can use to take out the upright in conduct. Or just not doing their job, perhaps. The recent pro-life building, as I mentioned this morning in Sunday school class, as I jumped the gun on my own illustration of my sermon, in which they had the video. They have a video 
of who firebombed them. Give it to the FBI to investigate it. They're not going to do it. They're not going to release the video that was theirs to begin with because it may increase, quote, right-wing extremism. Yeah, right. That's who bombed, firebombed them, right? Because that's who they're protecting now. So it's not just overtly attacking, but it's also who they're defending that shows their plot towards the righteous. So here's, a, as it were, a passive plot towards the righteous. Not them coming after them, although the FBI can do that and has done that. But in this case, they're just not going to do anything. They're not going to do their responsibility, apparently. So however it looks like, whatever tools is at their hands, they're going to use it to take down the upright because they hate them. The wicked will fall into their own sword, verse 15, and shall enter their heart and their bows shall be broken. And God will bring them to an ironic ending. It's a common theme. We know this elsewhere in the Proverbs. They lay a trap for them and they shall fall into their own trap. And their efforts will fail. Whatever tools they have at hand, economically, by social media, by governments, by word of mouth, shall be broken and come to naught by God's strength and power. They'll fall ultimately into their own destruction. In history, we've seen that upon one nation after another that hates God and tries to destroy the church. They've come to naught, like Rome, and the ten major persecutions. And where's Rome now? And yet the church is still here. They went after the Christians with sword and fire, and sword and fire devoured Rome twice by the barbarians that took them down in the 400s. Personal affronts at work are sometimes exposed to their detriment, and they get in trouble for bad-mouthing you because God and his providence has protected us and given us a good boss who's fair and equitable, even though, as we know, he doesn't care about God and really doesn't want to hear about our religion. But we thank God that he has broken the bows of those who wish to take us out and lie about us, whether individually or collectively. It shall come to pass. And so this part of the psalm, I think, should be very encouraging towards us and for us. The second point, righteous wealth versus wicked prosperity, verses 16 through 19. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. The arms of the wicked shall be broken. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. So here we have a contrast between what the wicked have, riches of some sort and good things, and yet we also have an inheritance, a inheritance that's different than theirs. That's the contrast. The righteous wealth and the prosperity in particular echoes Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 17.1. In Proverbs 22.1 we read, A good name is to be chosen rather than what? Great riches. The good name of being a Christian, a follower of Christ Jesus, is better than having the wealth of the world that's tainted with sin. Love and favor rather than silver and gold. If you had to choose between the two, it's better to have the good name of a Christian, even though you're poor. Proverbs 17.1, better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. And so there the contrast is to be in your poverty and to have a simple meal, that's not fancy with a steak and all that, and quietness than having a house full of feasting and strife. They have all these, what, prosperity we have in America, but we also have lots of strife because we're at each other's throat. Why? For the arms of the wicked, he tells us. That is why a little with the righteous man is better than the many of the riches of the wicked. Because the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Which is to say what? They cannot enjoy their wealth with their broken hands and their arms. It will happen again, partially in this life where through their own efforts they trip up on themselves and waste their wealth, 
some way or somehow in the market on their children, and they get caught lying or stealing or cheating, but ultimately, in eternity, they will not have any of their wealth. But God upholds the righteous. We will always have access to the wealth that God has promised us, the ultimate inheritance and everlasting righteousness, verses 18 and 19. He knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. And they shall be satisfied in times of famine. God knows their days, talks about there, the days of the upright, verse 18. That is, God's knowledge is intimate and thorough because he cares for his people and he guides us in that knowledge. It's not just a bare knowledge. Well, okay, God knows all kinds of things. He's a great, big, smart guy or something. That's not what the picture here is. He knows their days because he numbers their days because he guides and directs their days. And we shall not be ashamed. Verse 19, they shall not be ashamed in the evil time, the day of famine, they shall be satisfied. Not be ashamed because God is our God. We shall not be ashamed of Christ as our Savior. Because the Lord God Almighty is preserving us, preserving our soul, and giving us a better inheritance than the rich shall ever have. And we should be satisfied with God's goodness. Both in his bountiful providence that we have here, particularly in America and in the West, and above all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places as we sit with Christ Jesus our Lord. The famine of food, God often gives us meat. We are thankful for that, but especially the famine of the soul, wherein we are given the heavenly manna of God's word. This proverb does not specify what this famine is. <laughs> it just says, in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. We read elsewhere in the prophets, in the minor prophets, that there shall be a day of famine across the world, a famine of the word of God. But we shall not have that because we have the bountiful inheritance, verse 18b, the second part. That shall be ours forever, the inheritance of the word of God, of salvation, of a new heaven and a new earth. And we shall be satisfied in the goodness of our Lord and Savior. And then we have the wicked who perish, verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, so there's the contrast again. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into the smoke they shall vanish away. It's a certainty God will deal with haters of his holy rule. That the wicked here, notice the parallel, right? But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, saying the same thing twice, the wicked are the enemies of God, and the enemies are the wicked of our Lord and Savior. Particularly those who know God, and the God of the Bible, and yet hate his people. Here it is the enemies of the Lord, all capital L-O-R-D, the covenant-keeping God that we get from Exodus, where he says, I am that I am. I am eternally existing, and I shall keep my word because I do not change. And that's why Israel has survived Egypt. And those who are my enemies, they shall vanish like a puff of smoke. They are nothing before our God and Savior. Those who hate him and hate his people shall be completely and utterly wiped away. The splendors of a metal that is not partially gone, but completely gone, the splendor disappears and never comes back and permanently into smoke that shall vanish. Smoke never comes back. It doesn't reverse in this metaphor. The destruction of the wicked, and the wicked destruction, the third point, versus the righteous inheritance, although, again, I pointed out, some of these sub-themes overlap. Inheritance was mentioned in verse 18, and it's picked up here again in verse 22. So we have here a contrast, a proverbial form. The wicked borrows and does not repay, verse 21, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. 
there's your contrast again between the wicked and the righteous, that is, those who are followers of Jesus Christ. Remind us again, when it speaks of the righteous, it speaks of we who have our righteousness in Christ Jesus, but also have a relative righteousness, that is, we are followers of God, uh, we go to church, we've been baptized, we read his Bible. The world doesn't do that. They care nothing of these things. And by his Spirit, he works in us so that we can have the first fruits of obedience in this world. So we call that a relative righteousness, not an absolute. Nothing we can come before God and say, look how good I am. I've gone to church enough. I can be justified now. But no, rather we are already justified by faith alone, on account of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That never changes. That's a status that never changes changes. And so in those two senses, we are righteous before our God and Savior. So the contrast here between the wicked and the righteous, specifically thievery versus liberality. Not just stealing, of course. When it says the wicked borrows, he needs money, he's in a tight spot, and so he takes the money, but he doesn't repay, doesn't give it back. That's the contrast. But a proverb, as we know, uses analogies where one thing represents a larger class of moral ideas. So the borrowing and not paying, although a particular concrete act, like eating an apple is a particular concrete act, expresses more because it's a proverb, right? So it's stealing. It's a violation of the commandment of God. Perhaps economic oppression through market manipulations, lying and backroom deals, and all these things, and greed and avarice. That hurts, and take away what they should give, be, be repaying back and giving back instead, in verse 21. So the contrast, then, is they lack a liberal spirit because the righteous shows mercy and gives. The mercy here, of course, would probably be in contrast to the wicked, which is they give, knowing perhaps they'll never get it back. And they're fine with that. But the wicked, knowing they have to give it back, don't care. They'd rather steal it. And so I use the word liberal spirit. And of course, as you know, by liberal, I mean open towards those who are needy and helpless, and I don't mean the political title at all. In fact, the translation of one of the Proverbs talks about a liberal man. It's kind of funny, but that's what it means. It means open hand, an open heart to those who are properly in need. And the wicked do not understand mercy nor show it the way Christians show it. It's not true for each and every rebellious person, to be sure. In particular circumstances, these things change to one degree or another. But it's especially towards one group of people that the wicked borrow, as it were, and does not repay. That is, they don't care to be liberal towards them and to be helpful. Because the contrast is, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. They are not righteous, they will not show mercy, and they will not give any more than they have to, to the church of God. Almost everything we read in the Bible, brothers and sisters, about the poor about the needy, about the fatherless, or what class of people? Christians. That's what they're talking about. Now, in the Old Testament, there are Jewish Christians. It's the stranger who's not a Christian, right? They're the ones in the land. You have two types of strangers. But everyone else is a Jew without a father, without a mother, without a husband, or who's poor and cannot give back. And God says, take a special care for them. And so the liberality of the wicked is towards their own people, their own wickedness, but not to the poor, the widows, and the fatherless of the Jews of the Old Testament or the Christians of the New Testament. The wicked are not liberal towards them. 
They will not show mercy and they will not give freely. Not then and not today. When was the last time an unbeliever gave money to the deacon's fund? I don't think it's ever happened in my lifetime. Or ask yourself, I wonder if there's... Ask yourself, are they thinking to themselves, is there anyone who says, I wonder if there are any Christians that need help in Florida after the hurricane? Let's go make a GoFund for them and give them money. Is that what they're thinking? Is that what's happening right now? God tells us that he will bless those who bless his people. And he will curse those who curse the apple of his eye. And that's not just biological Jews. It was always the church of the Old Testament. And that's true for the New Testament. We are the apple of God's eye, precious to him. And those who bless his church, he does give blessings upon them. And that's what happened in the West. So think of it that way next time when it comes to liberality of the unbeliever. They're not interested in helping our own poor people. They care not for, our own poor, for Christian poor people. They don't care. They lost a house in a hurricane. Oh, well. Can I have more money, please, for my business because we're going under? I'll take the money. 2008, 2009, all the economic downturns and all the businesses that got all our tax money, and we didn't get anything in return for it. This is what they do, brothers and sisters. Inheriting the earth, what we see here, a conclusion of sorts, if, as I clump 12 to 22 together, for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Again, a contrast here between the wicked and the righteous. Inheriting the earth. Again, we read about that in a prior psalm. That the humble shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. And Christ says it again. So it is a theme in the Bible. A small theme, but it's a real theme nevertheless. God owns everything, even the land of Canaan. And so God gave that land to his people to show his love towards them. And God owns the whole earth and will do the same for us except instead of a small piece of land, it's the entirety of the earth after he purges it with fire. It purges all the sin and the effects of sin upon it, as we read in the second book of Peter. This is what? The new heaven and the new earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. Those blessed by God are the meek. The meek as defined by the word of God. Those who are humble and recognize their position underneath God's sovereign rule. Those are the meek ones. Those are the humble ones. Those are Christians and followers. And they are and shall inherit the new heaven and new earth with Christ, the Lord of all of it, brothers and sisters. And this is a comfort in this contrast here and all these verses in which we know in the beginning of the opening verses of Psalm 37, fret not, fret not, fret not, three times. The wicked seem to be getting away with things. They're working together. Their conspiracies are coming to fruition. But then we read, yes, as much as they make plots, verse 12, and gnash their teeth and draw their bows, God shall laugh at them, and they shall be utterly destroyed. And instead, we shall triumph at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We shall inherit all the things they wish they inherited. They want all the wealth now, they can have all the wealth now, because this wealth is disappearing. They can have all the gold, because it's so precious, but for us, gold is just something to walk on, because our streets will be made of it in heaven nothing to us, because we have something better, our God and our Savior. And he gives us, even beyond that, even as he does now, brothers and sisters, I have Jesus. He saves my soul. That's all I need. Yes, but he still gives you more. He gives you family. He gives you a church. He gives you food and raiment. 
And so in the new heaven and the earth, we have Jesus, yes, but he gives us even more than that because he delights in his people and he delights to give us an inheritance beyond what we can imagine. And those who will not submit and repent to him, instead, instead, they will be cursed by him and cut off for eternity. Their wealth will not save them. Their prosperity and machinations and plots against the just shall not preserve them. For God will laugh at them, although he nourishes us and will give us an entire world when Jesus Christ shall return. Let us pray. We do pray and ask God that we would be encouraged therein, that those who would pray upon the poor and needy, especially the poor and needy in the church of Jesus Christ, God, will be cut off if they do not repent. And we, on the other hand, God, who trust in you and humbly try to do what we can in your kingdom, knowing we shall fall short, we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, God, to that end, to carry on the path of righteousness. And for your name's sake we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing Psalm 37, verses 4 through 6, which match these verses. Verse 6 is the next page over.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all.